Silicon Valley is known as the birthplace of the high-tech IT industry. When Silicon Valley investors met ag tech startups, the culture clashed. That's the case laid out in an article co-authored by Sarah Nolette. I'm Robert Colangelo, and this is Green Sense, where we bring you eco-innovations and explore environmental issues that are changing the world. Sarah Nolette joins us now to talk about how Silicon Valley's set ag tech back a decade, as she puts it. Sarah, really uh, happy to have you here on Green Sense, and I'm glad you joined us. Robert, thanks so much for the invite. Well, let's start with your background. Uh, wow, you're, you're quite a smart uh, young woman there. You have a master's in system design and management from MIT, a bachelor of science in computer science and human factors engineering from Tufts University. Impressive degrees. What do they mean and what do you do with that kind of an education? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not probably, <clears throat> excuse me, not probably as much with those degrees as, as maybe I should or I thought I would originally. Um, yeah, my background's in, in computer science and technology. I originally um, probably chose where to go to college because of sports more than anything and got lucky in stumbling into computer science and then loved it. But my early career was in the defense industry of all things, building military intelligence analysis systems. And uh, I didn't perhaps love the industry, but what I did love was the complex technology and big system-y problems. And my role was figuring out how the users would interact with that technology. And that's been a theme throughout my career is the tech's great, but what does it actually mean for the users? Uh, so yeah, that that's kind of how I got started. So did you play sports? I did. Yeah. I played um, soccer, basketball, and track actually. Wow. Busy woman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I didn't do anything else. <laughs> So currently you serve as CEO and founder of Agthenic, a food and agricultural strategy firm, and you're co-founder of Tenacious Ventures, which is Australia's first dedicated agri-food tech VC firm. And you're focused on building uh, early stage ag tech ecosystem in Australia. And you also host the podcast, Ag Tech, So What? You continue to be very busy. Uh, so you sound uh, like you have an American accent, but you live in Australia. Give us a little background on that. Sure. Yeah. So we moved to Australia uh, six years ago for my other half's job. And to be honest, we, we sort of went back and forth on whether it was a good life decision or a good career decision. And ultimately it was both, uh, but we didn't really know anything about the space. I arrived knowing I wanted to work in ag tech. I'd been working in that space during my master's and in the US, but there wasn't really much of an ag tech ecosystem. There was really good agriculture, really good agricultural research in Australia, but just lacked that early stage commercialization piece. And so I saw that as an opportunity and that's really why I started Agthentic and along the way, the podcast, and then ultimately the fund. Very exciting. Well, your article that you wrote was very insightful and that's how I got in touch with you. And it shows how Silicon Valley investors and ag agricultural startups operate. So how did you develop such insight into these two sectors? Have, have you worked in Silicon Valley as a VC? So it's actually where I grew up. So I can't claim that I worked there because I technically haven't lived there since I was 17. But I, I, in some ways I have in that both my parents worked in the semiconductor industry and I was really around startups and venture my whole life. I mean, my dad would come home from a business tip to Japan where he was selling semiconductor equipment and around the dinner table, it would be, you know, who do I sell to? What, what Which company do I raise from? Whether I hire this person mm -hmm. or not. And so you don't really know how much that stuff impacts you um, until I ended up starting my own company and everyone said, oh, how did you know how to do that? And it never really occurred to me that I, you know, wouldn't do that or, or would do that. It just seems so normal um, given where I grew up. So I'm really lucky in that sense. Well, that's uh, that's an interesting background. Um, 
the ag tech or ag uh, food tech uh, industry has really grown and uh, uh, ag funder uh, Louisa Burwood Taylor posted a, uh, a piece on September 9th that said uh, 24 billion has been raised in the first six months of ag tech, uh, having it set a record. And in the post, it shows a graph with, uh, I think there's about 15 sectors that received that funding. And it ranges from e-grocers to novel farming systems, to robotics, to home cooking. Uh, capital is the grease that lubricates the gears of innovation. And uh, ag tech investing is, is an emerging market. It's less than 10 years old, but it's growing fast. Tell me, in your opinion, why are the capital markets so interested in agriculture, agricultural technology? Yeah, it's um, it's really a good question. And you're right, it has just really grown in the last 10 years. So a couple of reasons. I think the big one is honestly that it um, some claim it's the least digitized industry, which I'm not sure that's actually true. I think it's, you know, there's lots of digital equipment out there. If you look at a modern tractor, you just see how advanced it is. Um, but there is this unique position of agriculture to have longevity. We all need to eat and will continue need, need to eat. It has an impact on climate change in that it's a contributor to climate change. And it has this unique position of being able to be a solution to climate change and being able to sequester carbon or play a positive role in some of these environmental issues as we manage land. So that most recently has drawn a lot of investors, the combination of a lack of digital technology and this potential for climate change and impact uh, ha has made it a pretty hot sector. And agriculture is also some of the biggest user of water and energy. So as you said, you solve agriculture, you solve a lot of issues, uh, energy, water, and climate change issues. So that makes a lot of sense. So in simple terms, can you describe the characteristics of ag tech companies, uh, high tech IT startups, and compare the similarities and differences and why there's a culture clash there? Yeah, I mean, a little bit the title of the article was meant to be provocative and, um, you know, Silicon Valley has truly been what was good. It caught um, my attention <laughs> <laughs> has been, you know, foundational in bringing in capital to a space that really hadn't had it before. But one of the kind of characteristics of Silicon Valley is that often the business models and the technologies are for customers that are the users of that technology and are also the beneficiaries of that technology. So if I'm a, a software company and I'm selling to a small business, they're maybe using that software to improve their marketing or run their accounting system. And they're getting benefits in terms of the cost savings. Maybe they can have a smaller team or that team can be more efficient. So they're using it and they're benefiting from it. If we look at ag tech, some of the initial business models came out trying to follow that same model. And agriculture is a little bit different because farmers are this interesting hybrid of they're not really a consumer and they're 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 really more of a business, but we kind of think of them like consumers. And so when we tried this user beneficiary business model in many cases, it just failed. Farmers are often taking prices rather than setting them. They've got really low margin. They manage tons of risk. And so this business model of user and beneficiary um, just didn't really work uh, in many cases. Um, and that was some of the premise that got us thinking about this article um, as one of the nuances of agriculture and maybe why the traditional playbook just hasn't really worked. Well, one of the things I've seen out there is farmer fatigue. You know, farmers, as you, if you've mentioned, they're, they're stressed. They're working on very low margins. It's hard work. And yet they're bombarded by all these companies that want to sell them technology and they don't have time to analyze it, nor, nor maybe the uh, facilities to do that. So speak to that a little bit. 
Yeah, sure. And and then to make it worse, we blame the farmers and we say, oh, those laggards, you know, don't want to adopt anything. And it's like, well, you, you know, you haven't come with anything that's actually solving their problem or presented in a way that they can access it. So yes, farmers are running businesses. They're incredibly busy. They're faced with tons of risk. In fact, their whole business model is actually designed to take away risk. And uh, that's the opposite of venture capital, which is based on risk. So there's, again, another culture clash. But yeah, farmers have a whole bunch of solutions they're looking at. They all are kind of similar in this space. It's really hard to tell them apart. And every one of them is saying, no, no, we're the best and look how much money we've raised. Um, So again, cultural elements and kind of just fatigue of so many businesses in the same space with, with really similar claims. Well, you make the case that Silicon Valley doesn't even really seem interested in agriculture. You know, why is that? And can that change? So I would say, (laughs) yeah, increasingly, there is lots of interest. I mean, to your point before, Robert, about the the billions that have been raised, much of that money is is managed in or coming from Silicon Valley. But I would say the challenge is a lack of understanding, perhaps, of how the system works. And so this idea of, oh, we can just sell to farmers when they don't really understand, you know, the margins they face or the supply chains they operate in or why those supply chains were designed to be that way. Uh, And so, again, the kind of culture clash and really lack of understanding of how ag works. And then you get fatigue. I mean, just to tell a quick story, I was in the Central Valley of California. It's only a couple hours from Silicon Valley. And I thought, well, here, you know, the system would be working really well. We'll have these entrepreneurs that have come from Silicon Valley, and they'll really understand agriculture because they're only three hours away. And all the farmers that I spoke with said, we just get so many tech companies pitching us all these same things, and none of the things are good. They don't even work yet. They're over-promising and under-delivering. And, you know, what the heck? Why would we, you know, come to this next pitch event and work with them again? So it's really not a question of geography. It's this kind of question of technology and maturity of industry. Uh, a lot of farming is done on the West Coast, but there's also a lot done in the Midwest. And I think there's just a normal culture clash, too, when you get West and East Coast money coming into the Midwest. There's different sets of values. Have you seen that uh, be an obstacle? Yeah, I would say different sets of values, maybe to the point about risk, where venture capital is is sort of comfort comfortable and designed to take on this risk, whereas agriculture isn't. Um, another one is is just this difference in language. Uh, so I know I've had the experience of all, saying all the jargon in, in you know a Silicon Valley type world, or even at just startups and venture capital and accelerators, and um, that's not how farmers speak. And, and same thing when farmers talk about agriculture, that's not how startups speak. Um, to give you a, a funny example, maybe. Maybe I was literally in a room and and one farmer was talking to a startup and they were both saying the words AI. And I realized that the farmer meant artificial insemination and the startup meant artificial intelligence. And (laughs) that's just a silly example, but there truly is this kind of communication mismatch uh, often with these two worlds. Well, I had a similar experience. Uh, We had a a banker that uh, financed farms and he was talking about a chopper and there were three of us. One of them thought he was talking about a motorcycle and and the other (laughs) thought something else, but he was really talking about a harvesting machine. So you're right that it's very easy to uh, uh, misinterpret things. So going back to your article, uh, you also wrote, as the ag tech industry has evolved, it has created and attracted investors and entrepreneurs with experience not only in tech, but also in food and agricultural value chains who are leading the new wave of ag tech innovation. Are you saying there that ag tech startups require a a special capital source? And if so, in your opinion, what kind of investors are best suited to fund ag tech Mm. startups? Yeah, I mean, one of the um, challenges, as I was saying before, is kind of the lack of understanding of the industry. You know, if you come at it from a pure tech perspective, 
you might look and say, oh, that's a really nice widget. But if the farmer can't actually pay for the widget because of how the economics of, of water or feed work, then it doesn't really uh, move the needle. And so in terms of capital, my advice for startups would be, you know, this person might sit on your board after they invest or be with you, you know, for 10 years of this journey. Do they really understand the problem that you're trying to solve? Um, and can they add value around that problem? Now, maybe they can add value in other ways around the technology or the business challenges. Um, but if you're looking for someone with that industry expertise, you know, where did that come from and, and do they truly bring it? So um, we, oh, go ahead. We're going to ask a question. Well, if it's not Silicon Vester, uh, if Silicon Valley VC isn't right for ag techs, what, what is the right source? So I think, again, that goes back to kind of the, the, the cheeky model of um, it's not so much whether the capital comes from Silicon Valley, like I'm an investor in ag tech and I was born in Silicon Valley. So obviously, I, I don't think that's um, fully sure. an issue. Um, and nor do I think it's it's venture capital as an asset class. I actually think it's um, the model needs to be tweaked in some ways to um account for the nuances of agriculture. And that user beneficiary example I gave is a really good one. When we start to say, well, who is really the beneficiary versus the user? And in a lot of cases in agriculture, the big beneficiary is the supply chain, the people downstream of the farmers, the processors, the food companies who do have the margins and who do have the big incentive. And so under that nuanced understanding of the industry is really what the capital sources need to be thinking about when they pick who they're investing in. Great. Uh, well, there's another issue I see out there. There's a paucity of financing and funding available for uh, to fund R&D for ag tech startups. And one of the challenges in ag tech is everything takes a long time. We're not dealing with widgets. We're dealing with biological uh, innovation. So things have to go through the crop cycle. You know, seeds take five to seven years to develop. You know, uh, uh, testing a new uh, plant or growing system takes a long time. So it puts the commercialization of technology on startups, which is analogous to building an airplane while trying to take off. And so where do ag tech startups find funding uh, for this R&D so that they don't have to start a company and do their R&D while they're trying to, to generate profit? Yeah, it's a it's really um, good observation, Robert. I would say two comments. One, the ecosystem has evolved such that a lot of that foundational work um, there, it, it already exists now. I mean, when my business partner started his Internet of Things company 15 years ago, he had to do all the hard yards himself. There weren't protocols that existed, that the standards weren't out there. You couldn't just go download the software and use it because we, we had all this set up. Literally, they had to solder the parts onto the chip, you know, like all the hard work. And now that stuff just exists. So one thing is that the space has matured and ag tech can really take advantage of that. Um, the second piece I would say in terms of where the capital comes from is we're seeing industry sources of funding, whether that's um, co-ops or farming systems groups or checkoff programs or corporates, seeing that there's really this gap in the space and coming in to fill it. So one model that we're really excited about, it, it's early to tell, is the Harvest Automation Initiative from Western Growers Association. So it's a group of growers. Um, they've come together. There's, there's lobbying and marketing activities, but they've actually funded innovation. And what they funded is the development of that first tech stack for all these robotics companies that are coming in to solve the labor challenge. Now, instead of all of them having to figure out, okay, how do we map the orchard? How do we move the cart? They can focus on the arm or the end effector to actually pick the fruit because that foundational piece has been done by the industry. And that really accelerates things forward. Uh, and I think is a really great model for, for others to look to. 
when I read your introduction, I talked about you working in Australia to be, be, build the uh, ag tech uh, venture capital ecosystem. Uh, one of the things I've noticed being here in the Midwest is the East Coast and West Coast have very good ecosystems for uh, deploying capital. The Midwest has all the farming, a lot of farming technology, but we don't have the capital markets uh, infrastructure. For example, in the Midwest, if you fail, that's looked negatively. On the West Coast, that's a badge of honor. They're not going to even fund you unless you failed at a venture. So tell us a little bit, what does the ag tech investment ecosystem look like? What does that consist of? Mm, sure. I think one is your um, point exactly around this kind of culture of a failure. You know, there's good data out there that shows when you start a second venture, it doesn't matter whether your first one succeeded or failed, you're equally likely to succeed in your second one. So actually it's backed up that this, this failure uh, is, is a good thing. Um, but it, that's easy to say and hard to actually believe. So what it looks like, you know, one big factor is that in a place like Silicon Valley, you have entrepreneurs who've been successful, who then had an exit and have money, who then become investors. And they're the ones that can invest back in to new entrepreneurs, bringing that capital, but also that experience. So you have this sort of reinforcing loop of talent and capital circling around and creating new innovations. And in agriculture, we haven't yet had as much of that because we haven't seen these exits. And we're starting to see it. I have a little bit of hope as these bigger companies consolidate and merge with Monsanto and Bayer, for example, we'll see a little bit of outflux of talent that might start looking at startups and, and maybe coming into the ag tech space. Um, but that's one big piece. What about some of the support services, legal accounting? Uh, talk a little bit about what makes up that ecosystem. It's not just capital and entrepreneurs. Sure. Yeah. I mean, the, the, um, the kind of support around entrepreneurs. So you have things like accelerator and incubator programs. You have a number of service providers like accounting and legal um, support for fundraising. You have outsourced HR departments. You have um, outsourced sales firms. There's a whole um, range of talent and technology that you can tap into. Some of it good and some of it bad, I would say. Uh, not all you know, of these service providers are necessarily the way to go, <laughs> as is the case in any industry with middlemen. Um, but but there's truly no shortage of people trying to genuinely help to build startups um, and corporates funding some of those models because they know they can't do the innovation themselves. Uh, and so they can sort of sponsor a pitch competition or a prize competition or one of these events for startups and investors to meet each other and, and service providers um, to come along as well. Great. Well, let's talk about something that's old, but it's new again, and that's SPACs. Uh, they're a financial vehicle that are used by some uh, uh, ag tech startups. And for those that don't know, they're special purpose acquisition companies, and they're often referred to as blank check companies. They've been around for a while. They have a little bit of a tainted reputation, but have recently resurfaced. So I'm just going to give a quick summary of a SPAC, and then you tell me if there's anything you want to add to it, and then I've got a specific question for you. So in summary, SPACs are shell companies that raise capital to go public, and they need to invest that capital within 24 months or give it back to the investor. And once they go public, they then go search for companies to buy. And investors don't know who they're investing in when they provide the funds. And that's why they call them blank check companies. And they rely on the reputation of the promoter to place that capital in companies uh, because they've got a track record and they, they hopefully are gonna have a high potential for success. Um, the benefits are SPACs can go public faster and cheaper than traditional IPOs, but they're also less regulated with higher risk to the investor. Anything I missed or you'd like to add to that? 
No, I think your your point is exactly right that there's sort of been this resurgence. They're not actually new, but uh, they've kind of blown up this year as they've been in the news and as some celebrities and things have gotten involved uh, as well. So I'm in the controlled environment ag space, and we've had two uh, uh, companies use SPACs as a ways to, way to raise money. Uh, one of them is App Har- Harvest, which is a greenhouse focused on lettuce and tomatoes. The other is Aero Farms, uh, which is focused on vertical farming with microgreens and uh, leafy greens. Both these companies had valuations in excess of a billion with little to no revenue. Um, so are you familiar with these companies and are there any thoughts on App Harvest or Aero Farms as uh, using this as an investment vehicle to raise capital? Sure. I mean, um, not in investors in either and, and not an expert on SPACs, but I did have the opportunity to chat with David Lee, who's the president of App Harvest uh, on our podcast recently. And um, that was a really great experience to kind of hear about, uh, you know, why they looked at this model and, and how they're thinking about it. I mean, one thing that strikes me with SPACs is that it does give the chance to sort of tell the story over a different time frame than maybe with a traditional IPO. Um, and of course, you know, your access to this capital um, at a much early stage, as you said, perhaps before uh, revenue or significant revenues um, as another factor. So I think we'll see how, how, how it plays out. Um, but uh, yeah, definitely a new model that has gotten a lot of investors talking about whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. But what about these, what seems to be unrealistic valuations uh, pre-revenue? How do you justify those? Look, I would say that that is true uh, inside and outside of SPACs right now. We're yes. seeing very frothy <laughs> markets with very high valuations, uh, whether it's a SPAC or not. And um, in some ways, that's really exciting because it's attracting more talent into the sector. Uh, in other ways, you know, for investors, it can be a bit scary. And how much do you, um, you know, chase those markets versus kind of stay uh, in in the um, core of of what you do and and thinking about your your traditional um, models and ways of partnering with companies. So what are your thoughts on SPACs? Good, bad, indifferent, or we got to wait and see? I think we have to wait and see. I mean, we're in a unique position in that we predominantly invest in Australian originated companies. And so it's a ways before Australian companies would end up uh, in a SPAC situation. Uh, And so we're, again, that's probably why I'm I'm less of an expert on it, but we um, tend to think that the core focus for these companies needs to be creating value and keeping your customers happy and growing uh, in that path. And then the exits is not really something to be solving for. Um, They'll come down the road if you continue to focus on creating value for customers. Well, Sarah, I thoroughly enjoyed talking with you and our time went really quickly. Love to have you back on the show. If there's anything newsworthy or anything uh, specific to Australia, we've done a few shows down there. So uh, I'd love to have you back. So thanks for joining us on GreenSense. Fantastic, Robert. Thanks so much for having me. That's AgFenic Group co-founder Sarah Nolette talking about Silicon Valley and agricultural technology. This is Robert Colangelo, and you're listening to GreenSense. Subscribe to our podcast at GreenSenseFarms.com. And check out the GreenSense Minute on Thursdays and Saturdays on News Radio 105.9 WBBM Chicago.